My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here uh, at Aletheia Church, and it is good to see each and every one of your very tired-looking faces this morning, all right? So I'm going to do what I can to help you in your tiredness this morning. If I notice you uh, nodding off more so than normal, I will just speak a little louder, throw something, and see if I can wake you guys up, all right? I am going to begin with a very simple question this morning. Why do we believe what we believe? I would say, first of all, the reason we believe most of the things that we believe, many of the things that we believe, is because they are rooted in simple, basic, rudimentary facts. For example, we know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, how, how do we know this? Because we can say 2 and 2, and then we can count 1, 2, 3, 4, all right? So many of the things that we believe in life is as simple as knowing that we are, there are some facts and we believe those facts, and that's why we believe those things. But there are also things that we believe that aren't as simple as facts, but yet are based on our experiential reality. For example, I'm sure it is overwhelmingly agreed upon in this room that UF is greater than FSU. All right? And if I were to ask a simple question, why, you would respond with, dude, have you ever been to Tallahassee? Right? And the answer is no, I've never been to Tallahassee. Okay? And I actually don't plan on going. Okay? But I could, if I asked each and every one of you, each and every one of you could give me a litany of reasons based on your experience why the University of Florida is greater than Florida State University. But now let me ask you this. Why do we believe what we believe about God and His Word? Why do we believe as followers of Jesus that prior to a specific point in time, there existed absolutely nothing except God? Why do we believe that at a specific predetermined point of place and time that he spoke everything that we see into existence. Everything that you can see and smell and hear and taste and touch at one point did not exist. And through a word spoken by him, it is now here. But taking that one step even further, that one word holds all of this together. One word spoken however long ago, a really long time ago, now holds every molecule, not just in your body and your physical being, but in the entire universe. It holds it together and it all works seamlessly to where the gravitational constant never changes. Because if it did, it would all be gone. It would either expand or contract upon itself. Why do we believe that he fashioned man and woman in his image and placed them in a garden called Eden? Why do we believe that one sin that they committed has brought a curse upon all mankind? 
Why do we believe that the solution for that curse is God Himself stepping down from His throne in heaven, taking on flesh, being born as a baby in the most obscure circumstances? Why do we believe that that baby lived for 33 years and never sinned? Have you ever just taken a moment to actually conceptualize that? I mean, I can't go five minutes without sinning. And Jesus lived for 33 years and never once had an improper thought, an improper word, or an improper deed. But yet as followers of Jesus, we believe that. Why do we believe that He willingly gave up His life to be excruciatingly tortured and hung upon a tree? Why do we believe that His death is actually payment enough to cover not only my sins, but the sins of the entire world for any and all who would simply believe in His name? Why do we believe that He rose from the dead? Why do we then believe that He spent 40 days teaching His disciples to only float up into the sky and now we are anxiously waiting for him to return the exact same way to one day he, this God is going to float down out of the heavens and come back upon the earth. Why do we believe these things? Why do we believe that he will one day make all of this brand new, lifting the curse, and once and for all, we will spend eternity in his presence with no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more stress, fear, anxiety, and no more COVID. Why do we believe these things? Is it as simple as proving 2 plus 2 equals 4 and it's a basic fact? Is it because we have personally experienced everything that I just mentioned? And the answer is no. The Bible says the only reason that you and I believe what we believe about this gospel of Jesus Christ is because God's Holy Spirit has revealed it to us. That's the only reason any of us believe. And I, I just want us to breathe that in for a moment, okay? Now, don't breathe it in so much that you fall asleep, okay? But, 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 but I really want you to just think about that fact for a moment. The only reason you believe what you believe is because God's Holy Spirit, one day in your life, said it's time for you to believe. What does that do for you? Well, what does that mean for you as you sit here today in this place? What's that going to mean for you when you get up and walk out of this building today and go on with the rest of your life? I pray that this glorious thought dominates your thinking and your life today and in the coming weeks. If you have not been with us so far, 
or if you have been and have forgotten, let me just recap where we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We saw Paul um, at the very beginning writing his standard greeting to the church, a church that he has spent a lot of time with. He has discipled. He, he intimately knows the audience to whom he is writing here in the church of Corinth. And he has gotten word that, that, that things have gone a little haywire, a little crazy. Uh, a few years ago, there was a pastor who famously titled the book of 1 Corinthians, Christians Gone Wild, okay? And as you read, as we get through 1 Corinthians, you are going to see, because we are just getting started, okay? And the first thing that Paul addresses is there's these divisions in the church. And people are saying, hey, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Some even saying that they follow Jesus. And Paul's like, hey, this is not about Paul, this is not about Apollos, this is not about Cephas. You, you guys have, have missed the point. The, the thing that you should be talking about is the cross. The, the cross is the thing that you should follow. What Jesus did upon the cross that is the thing that you should follow. And this whole cross business is really viewed in one of two ways. It's either viewed as foolish by the world or as wisdom by God. And Paul says, you know, there's, there's all this stuff about the cross and, and people in, the, in their natural state. The Jews want power. The Greeks want wisdom. But God has brought about redemption and salvation through the cross. And it seems utter foolishness to the world that God would choose to redeem the world through a suffering servant, through a Messiah crucified in the most despicable circumstances possible. But Paul says, this foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And he says, you, you, you believe in this cross, and because what God has done for you on this cross, this should be the result of your life as we see it in chapter 1, verses 27 through 31. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the, the reason God did it this way, one of the reasons, is so that you and I could not boast. So that we have no boast before God or before anyone else for our own salvation. The only reason we should boast is directly because of Jesus. We boast not in ourselves, but we boast in His, in the work of Christ, and what He has done for us. And if we don't miss it, he then takes it one step further in this continuation of thought that we're going to see, in see today in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. But let's look first at verses 6 uh, through 10, the first part of verse 10. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This first part of verse 10 is what I base the opening of my sermon upon. Your faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, your faith in a crucified and resurrected Messiah can be credited to one thing alone. The gift of revelation given to you by God's Holy Spirit. There is no other reason why you believe what you believe about Jesus and His gospel other than the fact that God's Spirit has revealed it to you. This is an incredible fact and experiential reality. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, verses we are all very familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Keep that up there. The only reason you and I believe is because of a gracious act of God to where He has gifted you the faith that you have. The faith that you have is a gift from God. You did not do anything to earn it. You did not do anything to deserve it. He did not give it to you because you are more cute and cuddly than somebody else. All right? None of those reasons. God of His own choosing gave you this gift. And how this gift is given to us is that one day the Holy Spirit pulls back the veil upon our eyes to where now we see acknowledge, and accept this. Now, in my life as being a follower of Jesus now, I've now, I've now been a follower of Jesus longer than I've not been at, at 45 years old. And having pastored in, in, min, in several places, been a missionary around the world, I, I've had this conversation a lot with people about how we believe, Right? And, and if you're familiar with Jesus and Christianity and all these things, at some point in time, you, you've probably come across, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism and predestination and free will. And, and we make all these really complicated arguments about how people are saved or why people are saved and, and, and how, it, how it usually goes. And Because uh, people really resist this idea that God has to give you this gift and you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, okay? And, and, and I think the, the, the reason, the two most common, uh, the most common objection is, well, if God has to give this, if God has predetermined all of this, and is God alone who acts in this act of salvation, then it naturally brings up this question, of, well, does that make God unloving or does that make God bad? Why does God not just save everybody, okay? 
And so that, that, that's where it's usually rooted. But I'm going to be honest with you. I really think that's a cover up for the underlying issue. I think there's an underlying issue that we hardly ever get to, that we hardly ever discuss, that I think is at the root of the entire problem. And that root is something we should all be very familiar with, and it's something called pride, right? And, and what is at the center of pride? Well, you spell it out, it's I, right? At the center of pride is always I, okay? Because we don't like to acknowledge or accept this fact that I had nothing to do with it. That it wasn't because I, I, I'm not good, that there's, I would have never chosen Jesus had God's Holy Spirit not revealed it to me. And this really bothers us. But then, then I think there's a deeper question. Why does it really bother us? And if you've never considered it, I would just encourage you to spend some time considering. Because if it is God alone, who is the agent of salvation in the actual conversion, our regeneration, us having faith, then if it's Him alone who gives that to me, then at the end of the day, if I accept this fact and this reality, then there's nothing that He could ask me to do that I don't have to do. See, if, if I make the decision to follow Jesus, then I only have to go as far as my commitment to Jesus is. Right? Because I only have to, to do what, what I was willing to do to, to get this ticket into heaven, per se. This get-out-of-jail-free card. But if it is true that, that God alone saves as the agent of salvation, then there is nothing He can't ask me to do. And as a human being, I don't like that very much. I don't know how I feel, well actually I do know how I feel, about being totally and completely surrendered to any other entity, right? I mean, how do you feel about being completely and totally surrendered to anyone in your life, right? I mean, I watch my four children all day long. Each one is trying to get the other one to surrender to their will. And each of the other ones is fighting back to say, I will not surrender to your will. It is this great interplay between the role of God and human beings on a regular basis. But we do this with other people. We do not want to be completely holy and totally surrendered to anyone or anything. And so we, we resist this fact that the only reason that we believe is because it is a gift from God and it, was, it is uh, directly uh, caused by God's Holy Spirit giving us the gift of faith. But uh, what, I, what, I, what I want you to understand is if, if you will really spend some time in this and you will come to accept this as not only fact as the Bible presents it, not, not, not with fancy systematic theological terms like Calvinism. Or just, just push all those away. Just what the Bible says about the fact that the only reason you believe is because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. If you will accept this fact in reality, it will do amazing things for you and your walk with Jesus. It can radically transform the way you live and you walk out this every day because because accepting this reality does some things for you. It makes you 
humble. It makes you grateful. It makes you thankful. It makes it where you no longer boast in yourself, but you solely boast in the Lord and His work and what He has done for you. You walk around with this amazing mindset of, God, you have done this for me. You have saved me. You have redeemed me. I was walking in darkness. I was going my own way. And you came to me and you pulled back the veil to where I could see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You gave me faith to believe, to believe and to confess that Jesus is Lord. Oh my God, thank you for doing this for me. Thank you for doing what I would have never done for myself. Thank you for having grace upon grace for me that I, an undeserving sinner, would get to spend eternity with you. That I, an undeserving sinner, get to be a part of building your kingdom upon this earth. It will radically revolutionize your walk with Jesus if you will accept as fact and reality that the only reason you believe is because God's Holy Spirit has revealed to you the truth about Jesus. But let me tell you, it's not just for you, right? It's also for your one. And if you've not been with the Lathia Church for a while, for the last several years, we, we have what we call the One Campaign. And each and every year, we ask you to write down one person on a card and put it somewhere and keep it with you. And, and, and the question is, who is the one person this year, right now in this moment in time, that, that you believe that God has put into your organic sphere of influence, who is not a follower of Jesus, that he you, you can just see all around, this is the person that God wants you to invest in, to spend time with, to, to share the gospel with, to pray for, to, do, to move heaven and earth, to do anything in your power to see this person become a follower of Jesus. And look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what I said right before that might seem to you contradictory for a moment, because Daniel, you just spent all this time saying it is only the Holy Spirit who reveals these things. But yet you challenge us as a church to go out every year and to have this one person to whom we are investing all this time for, sharing the gospel with, doing our best to convince them to follow Jesus. But those two things aren't at all contradictory. But yet, having accepted this reality, understanding this reality, you, you have probably found yourself in efforts where you are sharing the gospel with people and you're asking them, why doesn't this person believe? Like, how can you not see it, right? I mean, in, in, my, in my gospel community last week, there was someone who was just like, I don't see how people can't believe with G and Jesus. This is like the most greatest, most awesome, most wonderful offer the world has ever known. Why would anybody not want to follow Jesus? Have you ever found yourself there? Well, here's why. 
because they can't see. I mean, we ask this question, and it's an okay question to ask, but, but, but it's the equivalent of, of taking a, a flashlight with a million lumens and going up to a completely and totally blind person, holding it right up to their eye and say, can you see this? And they go, no. And you go, and why? And they say, I'm blind. Right? I mean, that, that is the exact thing that we're dealing with. But we don't actually think that's true. And because of that, we get really frustrated and we get really mad. And then we start to think, well, gosh, I must really stink at this gospel presentation thing. If I would just say the right word, if I would have just gone through that app on my phone perfectly, if I would have just drawn that diagram a little bit better on the napkin, then that person would have believed. No, they wouldn't. They can't. They have no power to believe. For they are a natural man. The only way they can come to faith, the only way they can come to believe according to the Word of God is if the Holy Spirit gives them the faith to believe. Now you may be asking yourself, well, then why evangelize at all? Because you've told me only the Holy Spirit can do it. I can't talk anybody into it. I can't make the perfect presentation. I, no matter how good a salesman I am, I can't talk anybody. So Daniel, why should I even evangelize? Why should I go out on campus when everybody goes out, else goes out at 1.30 on Thursdays? Why should I invest in people and want to see them become followers of Jesus? Why not just become fatalistic and let's let God work it all out? Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God already knows and has appointed the day of your death? If so, then why eat? If He already does, if He's already determined, like why, why do you bother eating? Because you know that God has orchestrated the means as well as the end. And so when it comes to gospel presentation, when it comes to the salvation of those who are the children of God, you and I are the ones who He has told to go and to share the gospel of Jesus. But, but the point in this is to take all the pressure off of you sharing the gospel. Because you don't cause anyone to believe or to not believe. They already don't believe. And if they do believe, it is because God's Spirit reveals it to them. See, we, we, we miss the point. Like we tell people to evangelize for the sake of conversion. That is not why you evangelize. You evangelize because Jesus is worth talking about to anyone and everyone. That, that, you, we tell people about Jesus because Jesus is worthy of our testimony. Jesus is worthy of us talking about more than some great play in a football game, some pretty girl we saw, some hot guy we saw, some great movie we saw. The Bible just has this assumption because God's Holy Spirit has revealed to you the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of Jesus that you would just go and that you would be talking about Jesus wherever you go. 
And that is evangelism. It is just saying, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is wonderful. Here's why I believe what I do believe about Jesus. Here are the facts about the cross, the resurrection, and all those things. We talk about those things, but not with any pressure to convert anyone. But to boast in the Lord, right? To boast in the Lord and His goodness and His greatness and His graciousness towards us. And that way we have no pressure to convert anyone. We just praise and glorify and boast out of the overflow of the Spirit's work in our life, proclaiming the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And and I know some of you probably still aren't convinced that it is God alone who does this work. And maybe you think it's just a New Testament idea, but you need to understand this is, this is an idea rooted in the entire Bible. And though I would encourage you to go and read the entire passage in Ezekiel, I want you to see what it says in two verses in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And if you ever read this, it begins in verse 22. It goes down for about 15 or 20 verses. And then you go into the scene with the Valley of Dry Bones, which if you're a kid raised in church, you probably may know the song, you know the story, and the, you know, the dry bones that get flesh and they all come to life, right? But, but I, I want you to see what God says to the prophet Ezekiel. And this is, in, this is vitally important to our lives today. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Guys, this is the salvation experience, right? If if you are a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you, you need to ask, have you had this experience, right? Because for those of us who are who are followers of Jesus, there was a time where we did the things that we wanted to do and we lived life the way we wanted to live. And that's the heart of stone. But yet at some point in time, and sometimes it's just it's instant revelation, it's like, I don't want to do those things anymore. Like for me, that happened my, my senior year at Auburn, right? I'm sitting at a stop sign. I'm telling you, God spoke to me out of the blue. I wasn't asking for it. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't seeking it. And it radically changed my life. And all the things that I was doing before, I didn't want to do anymore. And I didn't know why I didn't want to do them. I just didn't want to do them anymore. And so it wasn't some out external law trying to compel me to do things, but something internally had changed inside of me. Then if you were a follower of Jesus, this is, this is what a picture of what it looks like when God comes to you, when the Holy Spirit reveals to you the truth about Jesus. He takes out your heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh, which is the Holy Spirit indwelling you so that you now long to follow Jesus. And that is why when we share the gospel with our one, this is what we're praying for. We are praying, God, take this person's heart of stone out and give them a heart of flesh. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, reveal to them Jesus so that they would walk in your ways. 
That is the prayer that we should pray for those who don't know Jesus. Let's run through verses 10 through 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. There are a lot of Bible studies and books that have been written about the mind of Christ. Very simply stated, the mind of Christ is when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and actually allows you to start thinking like Jesus did to be able to spiritually discern things in a way you couldn't before. That's what the mind of Christ is. That you now have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you so that you can now see things as God does not just through the lens of a natural man through which you could not see before. We no longer have the spirit of the world blinding us. We now have the spirit of God so that we can understand the things freely given us by God, it says in verses 12 and 13. And so I, I want to I make this practical for us. And there were a million examples I could come with come up with, and uh, I'm going to choose two for the sake of time. The first one is greatness, right? We are here at the University of Florida. I think I just saw this last week. You're, you're now the number five university in America. All right, two of you are excited about that, all right? Um, I can tell you, your university is really excited about that because that means millions more dollars are going to pour into your university, right? They are much more excited than you are. But, I mean, you, you guys are driven. Like, you did not get here by accident, right? This wasn't your last choice. You are, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the leftover place to be. So people who, who are here uh, are, are really striving to be great. And even if you're not at the University of Florida, you're striving to be great in some way. And this is something that is talked about more than once in Scripture. And the way we typically approach greatness is through the lens of the natural man. And there's this great conversation that happens between Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, l- l- let me just say to you, um, if you've only ever been a child and you've not been a parent yet, um, the situation in Jesus' day, it could not be further from what we experience today, right? Where, where you are all these great and wonderful things to your parents and society has tried to lift you up and bolster your self-esteem and your self-confidence and all those things. Everything was the exact opposite in Jesus' day. Children were seen as a burden. They were kind of the lowest of the low. You know that whole thing, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? Well, why is that? Because the baby got the very last bath, right? After everybody else had bathed, all the water was dirty and filthy and nasty. Children were not esteemed and privileged position in this society. They are the lowest of the low in this society. You cannot view them through today's lens. Do not misread this through your Western modern eyes, okay? They are the lowest of the low. Now, that was my little tangent for the day. I get one per sermon. That was for you. Who is the greatest? Now, here's the deal. In church, in this Christian bubble that we live in, you might be afraid of being great. You might be afraid of striving to be great. And you kind of wonder sometimes, how do you balance this kind of accomplishing and achieving and being greatness and it not be pride and it not be out of the middle? How do I do this as a follower of Jesus? Like, like how does Tim Tebow do this, right? I mean, he's, he's this great guy. He does these great things. But, but how does he balance this as a follower of Jesus? And so a lot of times we shy away from greatness toward mediocrity because we get told you should not strive to be great. But is that what Jesus says? Does Jesus chastise them for talking about being great? Only in the sense that they did not understand what greatness was. But Jesus actually says, hey, I'm going to tell you how to be great. I want you to strive to be great. But this is not something that the natural man can discern. Because the natural man, through money, and power, and all of his means, and all of his desires, and all of his fleshly inclinations, strives to be great for the sake of himself, for the sake of pride. Where greatness in the kingdom view, in God's view, is given to us, we, or we achieve it and we strive for it by becoming the servant of all. Jesus wants every person in this room to be great. But he wants you to do it with kingdom values, not with worldly values. This is what we call upside down leadership, right? Servant leadership. A lot of corporations are now bringing this on. You know who they're hijacking all of this from? Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the model of servant leadership. The one with the most power serving the lost and the least. Your whole life should be spent serving those around you. And if you do that, no matter your station in life, no matter how much money you have, how much power you have, that is greatness. 
you need to rewire and redefine what greatness is. Jesus does this for us. Most of the people that God considers to be great, you will never see and you will never notice. You know why? Because they're too busy serving, doing exactly what Jesus called them to do, to ever be noticed. And there are people in this church, you're going to hear an invitation at the end of the day from creative. People who are serving women who are being trafficked. No one knows where they are, what they do when they do their ministry. Nobody sees them. Nobody praises them and puts them on TV. But yet they are considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because they have given their lives to serve the least of all. We have a single woman in this church who by my best count, I think has fostered five kids in the time that I've been here. She could be out on Friday and Saturday night hooping and hollering with her friends. You know what she chooses to do? To go to work and to take in young boys and girls and to serve them. That's greatness. Jesus says that is greatness. Those are the people you need to follow. Not Instagram followers. It's not about Instagram followers. It's not about movie stars. Influencers may or not be great. But I can tell you, people who serve the lost and the least, they are great, and those are the ones that you need to get to know. But you're going to have to go to them because they're not promoting themselves because they're too busy doing kingdom work. One other example that I'll make applicable to us is getting drunk. We always pick on sex around here, so I figured, ah, we'll just avoid sex today and we'll talk about the other college vice. Getting drunk. And again, this is one of those things. You've been told your whole life not to get drunk. And in a worldly sense, yes. But in a spiritual sense, you're actually told to get drunk. The Bible has a lot to say about alcohol, right? Cannot cover it all today. There are a lot of grave warnings about alcohol, about it being biting and stinking like a viper in an adder and getting you in a whole lot of trouble. All right? But yet, there are times where we see in God's, God's own celebrations. Wine is consumed. Paul even tells Timothy to go take some wine for your stomach. Please do not give me any arguments about it being non-alcoholic wine. Okay? It was alcoholic. We're just going to just do that, right? So again, the Bible says there's wisdom in the subject of alcohol. Now, if you're under 21 and you live in this country, the wisdom is you are not allowed to break the law of the land, so please do not use the Bible to excuse your underage drinking, okay? There, I covered that one. That should get me out of most trouble, okay? But, but here's the question. Why do you think you are told not to get drunk? Have you ever, like, thought about it? Is it because the government's trying to hold you back? Is it because your parents don't want you to have any fun? You know, like, like, why are you told to not get drunk? Well, what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, 
goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Faithfulness, sorry, yes. Sometimes at 45, the brain forgets one. Self-control, right? Can you maintain self-control by being drunk? The answer is no. That is why getting drunk is a sin. Because you no longer have self-control. But the spiritual side of this, once you become a follower of Jesus, the Bible actually says, hey, I want you to get drunk on something else. Look what it says in Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does he mean? Because he knows that when you get filled with spirits, you are no longer in control. You are now under the influence of those substances. And so as the follower of Jesus, the the lens that we now view this and look through is that we want our life to be under the influence of and controlled by not spirits, but the spirit. Right? And so so for all of these subjects in life, and we could just, we could pick more, you know, pick a litany of subjects. There are these commands that sometimes we, get, we, we are told to avoid, but what we've not done is actually put spiritual eyes on these things. And this passage says what we do is we impart spiritual wisdom to spiritual people. Now, whether you receive this today or not tells us if you have the Spirit, if you are, have the maturity and are maturing in the Spirit. And so today, as as we close out with this idea of the mind of Christ, we're going to move into a time of just kind of prayer and reflection, and I'm going to lead us through some prayer and reflection. A a time where we, we just sit and just thank God for revealing this to us, but also asking God to give us spiritual eyes to discern spiritual things so that we can spiritually walk in this world that is dark and is natural and is lost apart from King Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time giving thanks to God. We're going to spend a few moments praying for those that we know that God has put in their life that doesn't know Jesus. And we're going to ask God to give us spiritual eyes where we need them. So if the band wants to go ahead and come back up,